Hello and welcome to Against the Law, the myth-busting ancient history podcast. Each episode, we take a look at something that's going on in the present and peek back into the past to see how ancient societies handled it. If we come across a big misconception about the ancient world, you'll hear a gavel sound. Which means we're going against the law to sort the fact from the historical fiction. This episode goes out on Valentine's Day, so we're going to be talking about relationships. Whether you're single and ready to mingle, in a COVID-safe way of course, or snuggled up to a significant other, or whether it's just complicated, you'll probably find that there's a figure in ancient history who can totally relate to your relationship status. I'm Xenia, and I'm going to be covering Roman relationships. If I mention my own paramour, the Emperor Hadrian, you'll hear a sound effect. I'm joined by Barney, who can tell us about what love had to do with the ancient Near East. If he mentions Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, you'll hear a Mesopotamian moo. Flo is here to share the love and learn about the ancient world along with you listeners. So it's all Greek to her but not to Alison, who is our resident researcher on the ancient Greeks. Even the best love stories can have tragic endings, so if Alison mentions Greek tragedy, you'll hear... So happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Are you doing anything to celebrate? Um, you know, I've never actually been a been a big celebrator of, of Valentine's Day. For the past five years, my other half and I haven't done anything particularly romantic, but weirdly this year... We want to put the effort in because it's like we kind of feel like we d- we deserve a bit of excitement during lockdown. So it might be, you know, instead of sitting on the sofa and watching TV for Valentine's Day, we might sit on the sofa, watch TV, just like dressed up nicely. Oh, that's cute. With like a top hat kind of level of dressed up or with... Oh, um... Zenia, calm down. <laughs> We're not getting the top hats out yet. Just like not pajamas this time, I think is probably is probably the dress code. How about you? What are you up to? So I normally just make like a fancy pink dessert for Valentine's Day. Maybe I'll just do like a raspberry rice pudding or something. My mind has instantly gone to aphrodisiacs in the ancient world because of that. Nando's is a bit of an aphrodisiac for me, to be honest. I'm a I'm an easy date. Nando's makes me very happy. Are there any sort of um ancient history aphrodisiacs that we can talk about i think in one episode we talked about gladiator sweat filled mushrooms didn't we Zenia? we did um there was another uh food stuff that was quite popular as an aphrodisiac in ancient rome it was called sylphium and it had it was like the wonder herb it was used in uh, a seasoning in various things as like a, a part of a herb mix but it, it was also supposed to be both an aphrodisiac and a contraceptive um, unfortunately, it's extinct now, so we can't test its properties, but it, it may have gone extinct just because the Romans used it so much. Is this is this the plant, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the plant that is shaped like a heart and the seed pods are shaped like a heart and that's where we think we get the heart shape? Yeah, that's exactly that, right. So if you didn't have the power of sylphium to hand uh, to woo your significant other with... What what's a good way in the ancient world to woo your partner, seduce them? Well, a classic way might be if you had some sort of ancient instrument like a lyre, you might serenade them. Like the equivalent of like serenading someone with Wonderwall or something on a guitar. 
Yeah, like a kind of Shawn Mendes style seduction, you know. I've always found that concept very awkward, sort of sitting there while someone plays you a tune. But but playing the lyre to someone sounds actually quite romantic. I'd probably be quite enthralled by that if someone played the lyre to me. Was that considered like a very romantic thing to do or was it as cringy as we think of it now? (laughs) Good question. I imagine it's probably just as cringy. Uh, But I suppose if you're writing songs about people and it's kind of subtle enough, then maybe that's quite a good way of wooing them. You know, so you're like performing songs as normal, but they're just about someone that you really love in a kind of quite coded way. Um, So Sappho's poetry is actually a really good example of this. Um, She wrote lyric poetry, so it's designed to be accompanied with a lyre. So it's pretty romantic stuff. Uh, Sadly, now it only survives in fragments, but it was really popular and also really highly regarded in the ancient world. I recognise Sappho as the name of a 1920s, this might be wrong, 1920s leaflet magazine for lesbian women uh, that was like an undercover thing. Yeah, so Flo, it's definitely the term sapphic to sort of uh, imply lesbian relationships uh, is from Sappho. Um, And also, interestingly, the word lesbian is actually related to Sappho. Does anyone know where Sappho was from? Oh, oh, pick me, pick me. <laughs> Go on. Is it the Isle of Lesbos? It is. It's the Isle of Lesbos, which is a Greek island. So the term lesbian literally kind of means uh, from Lesbos. Uh, it's not it's a term that wasn't kind of coined into the 19th century to mean kind of a, a gay woman or a woman in a gay relationship. Um, and it's, it's from Sappho because a lot of her poetry is about her love for women. Wow, I didn't know that. Alison, what you said about Sappho really reminds me of um, a Roman poet called Catullus. Uh, so he's he's writing uh, erotic poetry to his mistress um, and he has to call her by a code name because she's quite well known in Roman society and she's actually married as well. So it's very naughty. Um, but what he calls her is Lesbia because he's writing in the same meter, in the same style that Sappho did. So is that like an Easter egg? in the ancient world like if you were erudite you'd you'd know (laughs) you'd know the Sappho reference yes Sappho is kind of the OG when it comes to like lyric poetry and romantic poetry so she's a lot earlier she's kind of the beginning of the 6th century which is kind of a long time before the Roman like love elegists are writing love elegy kind of being just just love poetry of a similar nature um so she's really the one that they're all trying to imitate which is pretty cool that the original is like a, a woman, a queer woman. That's really cool. And was that was that considered like cool and fine and acceptable in that culture then? So that is a really good question. I mean, it says a lot that Sappho only survives in fragments, despite being one of the most popular authors kind of at the time. Um, her work has suffered a lot kind of in translation. A lot of translators have decided to interpret her work as being heterosexual. So, for example, there's this uh, Sappho fragment that's sweet mother, I cannot weave. Slender Aphrodite has overcome me with longing for a girl, which has often been translated as boy or man for kind of no reason other than to make her seem heterosexual, which is obviously totally unnecessary. Throughout history, do historians have a tendency to downplay gay relationships? Because from my perspective, I know that I've read articles um, about uh, historical figures and it's always like uh, this lady lived with her best friend Margaret 
for 70 years and they had a huge collection of cats together and uh, were never seen without one another. And when Margaret died, she went into mourning and never recovered and they were best friends. Absolutely. Like, absolutely spot on. Uh, It's something that happens in archaeology. So, for example, uh, if archaeologists in the past or possibly even in the present day find kind of two... Uh, like young men who appear to kind of if it were a young man and a woman they'd assume that they were a couple but because it's two young men they assume that they were just really close friends you know they were roommates kind of energy sexuality definitely wasn't spoken about in the terms that we use today in the ancient world they didn't have terms like lesbian gay bisexual so we are imposing our own culturally specific terms on the ancient past when we do categorize sexualities in that way So historically speaking, um, what has survived in terms of what we know about gay relationships or bi relationships? The very first explicitly homosexual ruler in the world was Roman. He's the Emperor Hadrian. Other rulers may have been um, homosexual before, in fact, including Hadrian's predecessor, Trajan, but not explicitly. Now, Hadrian was different in the sense that he had a very public relationship with a young man called Antinous. And so last time we talked about statues of Augustus. Well, there are two other statues of uh, Roman men that pop up like literally everywhere. And those other two men are Hadrian and Antinous. So they're really, really recognisable. Hadrian's always with his beard. He brought the beard back in fashion. And Antinous, he's, I mean, you know, even objective, he just really is quite stunning. <laughs> that's so romantic. So would would Hadrian have commissioned these these sculptures then? Because that's like, that's ultimate romance, isn't it? I, I really love you. I've had someone do this extremely flattering sculpture of you, and I'm going to put them absolutely everywhere. Well, yes. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's quite a sad reason that he had all of these statues commissioned. So they met in um, AD 123, uh, just six years after Hadrian became emperor in a place called Bithynia, which is northwest Turkey. So that's where uh, that's where we think Antinous was from. They got together in AD 125. But, and uh, Antinous went on the rest of his sort of big world tour with, with Hadrian. But when they were on a, a cruise down the Nile, Antinous drowned in really mysterious circumstances. And Hadrian was absolutely distraught. So he founded a city on the spot where um, Antinous's body washed up called Antinoopolis. And he, yeah, so he commissioned all of these cults statues uh, and deified Antinous. Again, we, we talked last time about about the emperors being deified after their death. This was really the first time a, a commoner had been deified. It was quite controversial. That said, it was so popular, especially in Antinous's hometown and in Egypt as well. They loved this idea of um, this sort of young man who died before his time. It really ties into the myth of Adonis, who was um, a mortal lover of, of Venus. Um, and so they, they he's, he almost becomes like a Barbie doll for the ancient world. They dress him up in all of these like local forms of dress. So you've got him in an Egyptian style. You've got him like covered in flowers and got uh, it's it's really cool you get all of these different sort of styles of of Antinous statues 
that's desperately sad and yet at the same time it's very bittersweet I think that's quite an uplifting way to remember someone who obviously Hadrian loved dearly that's actually very sweet if I if I I'm just touching wood at the moment if I die young I hope my other half uh founds an entire town where I die that's really cool Zania um that story of kind of uh, a lover responding to their feelings of bitter grief really chimes with um, a story from Greek epic, uh, particularly of the mythological figure of Achilles from Homer's Iliad. Um, so the Iliad is set at Troy, which is modern day Turkey, um, and begins uh, with Achilles being angry at the Greek leader Agamemnon uh, for essentially taking an enslaved woman away from him. So we already have alarm bells ringing about the ethics of this situation. It's basically two enslavers fighting with each other. So, yeah, be aware of that. Um, And as a result of this argument uh, with Agamemnon, Achilles basically refuses to fight on behalf of the Greeks, despite being their best warrior. Um, And eventually his close companion, Patroclus, convinces Achilles to let him borrow Achilles' armour and pretend to be him on the battlefield. Um, Which you can imagine, because Patroclus is not Achilles, he doesn't manage to do as well as Achilles, and in doing so gets himself killed by the Trojan hero Hector. Um, And when Achilles hears about this, he basically absolutely loses the plot and for basically the rest of the book goes on an enormous grief inspired killing spree uh, and ends up also taking some absolutely brutal vengeance on Hector. So that's a big story. um, And it definitely raises the question about Achilles and Patroclus's relationship, as evidently Patroclus's death just means everything to Achilles. I I think anyone who's loved anybody, especially in a romantic relationship, when that person is so important to you, you would do anything to avenge them. I I go physically red hot if I even imagine somebody that I love dearly coming to any harm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, also, it was kind of canon in the ancient Greek world that they were romantically involved. Um, We actually have evidence, although the tragedy doesn't survive. We have evidence that the ancient tragedian from Greece, Aeschylus, wrote a tragedy about Achilles and Patroclus' relationship called Myrmidons, um, which included, and I quote from a scholar Matthew Wright, passionate declarations of love alongside explicit descriptions of sex. So he's really not skirting around the fact that they are like fully erotically romantically engaged with each other. That's really interesting Alison. I know a lot of people have drawn parallels between Achilles and Patroclus and one of the major heroes of Mesopotamian myth, um, the hero king Gilgamesh and his partner in crime uh, Enkidu. Um, although it's, I think generally the, the the word on the street is it's a lot more subtle than what Myrmidons might have been. Um, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the nature of the relationship of, of Gilgamesh and Enkidu. Um, so just a little sort of a little primer on this. Um, Gilgamesh is like the big culture hero of Mesopotamia. He's an amazing king. And it's a terrible king as well. Um, at the start of the epic of Gilgamesh, he's he's rampaging over the people of his city, which is called Uruk, uh, which has the reputation of one of the oldest cities in the world. Uh, his the citizens are scared of him, um, and he has this kind of rampant sexual energy by which he's exerting his right of to sleep with any bride who gets married in the kingdom, um, which is incredibly problematic Um, and so the people pray for relief from Gilgamesh in his 
opening form as this tyrant. Um, and the gods deliver this wild man, Enkidu, um, who, as opposed to Gilgamesh, who starts off in the city, he appears out in the desert as this incredibly shaggy, hairy, beast-like person. Um, and so you've got this this difference between the urban, uh, tyrannical Gilgamesh and the pure, wild Enkidu at the start. Um, but then throughout the epic, their roles begin to converge. I really, I, I love the story of Gilgamesh, but that's my nerd side coming through because Gilgamesh features really heavily in an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation called Darmok. And um, in that in that story, Captain Jean-Luc Picard, who's played by Patrick Stewart, has to communicate, but only in metaphor, because the language uh, of the of the people on the on the uh, starship that he's been captured by only speak in in metaphor. And he retells the story of of Gilgamesh almost word for word, exactly how you've said it, Barney. But he says um, he says at the end they were victorious where they fought the the uh, great bull of heaven, but Enkidu fell to the ground, stu- struck down by the gods, and Gilgamesh wept bitter tears, saying, he who was my companion through adventure and hardship is gone forever. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so that's basically, that's the ultimate fate of their relationship, is is very similar to um, what Zenia described, the, the bitter grief of, of Hadrian and um, and Achilles's um, response to Pat- Patroclus's death as well. Um, you know, it, it's it's difficult to overstate how strong the bond between Gilgamesh and Enkidu is. Um, Gilgamesh has a dream when Enkidu arrives uh, that he he falls to earth as this sort of symbolic meteorite. Um, and Gilgamesh, it said he loves it like a wife and he croons over this, this meteorite and then this axe in his second dream, which turns out to be Enkidu. Um, and so the strength of their relationship is is couched in terms of of man and wife, um, which, you know, for, for a society as, as patriarchal as, as Mesopotamia is a very strong statement of their love and affection for each other. I mean, they, they do have a bit of a rocky relationship when they first meet um, after Enkidu has been tamed. Um, they have a huge fight. Enkidu and Gilgamesh have this huge fight and neither emerge as the victor. Um, so they're both these hyper-masculine, they're like destroying the temple and shaking the walls as they're fighting. Um, and then neither can beat the other, so they just hold hands and become this amazing, uh, like, incredibly strong homosocial bond with each other, basically. I think that's dead romantic. Well, what's interesting is that when Enkidu dies, which which he does, it's their punishment for killing the Bull of Heaven that you just mentioned, um, he, he basically sort of wastes away, and then in turn Gilgamesh wastes away, and he starts wandering the steppe, wandering the desert as a... Uh, not a not a wild man in the sense that Enkidu was at the beginning, but he he loses all of his strength, he loses his luster, he becomes haggard, um, and people begin to recognise that he's missing something in his life, and this is this is the result of his his loss of of Enkidu, and he's pursuing the immortal life at this point, um, and he never quite attains it, and is uh, by the end of the epic satisfied with dying um, as a mortal in the way that Enkidu did. That reminds me of a poem that Hadrian wrote towards the end of his life. It's it's really sad. He goes, um, little soul, little wanderer, little charmer, where are you off to now? To dark, cold and gloomy places and you won't make your usual jokes. That's absolutely heartbreaking. Especially because it sounds like he had top banter as well. 
Is there any way we can lighten things up? I'm feeling very sad. (laughs) I thought maybe a seg from like Star Trek. I found it really interesting that you brought up Star Trek, Flo, because I think it's really cool when you see classics used in modern day stories or like sci-fi and often in kind of queer modern day stories. Um, So, for example, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the famous film uh, by Celine Sciamma that came out maybe two years ago now, actually. Uh, There's lots of classical imagery of the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, which itself isn't particularly a a queer myth, but it's used in this lesbian love story. Or, for example, Call Me By Your Name is another queer love story that features a lot of classical imagery, um, some of which is kind of explicitly queer and some of which isn't. So it's it's cool to see... um, to see these stories from classics, which often have such a kind of heterosexual um, reception history, be kind of used in interesting ways in kind of queer culture in the kind of modern 21st century world. I was going to say also, it's certainly a breath of fresh air compared to some of the more contentious uses of um, of classical history in the modern world, like by the alt-right, to see it also being used in these positive expressions of... Um, of love and and these you know non-heterosexual relationships that have been denied representation for a lot of human history yeah absolutely so like for example the film about the iliad like the most recent film about the iliad the 2004 hollywood film troy which features a very ripped brad pitt as achilles is like unbelievably hetero for kind of no reason and to the to the point where it's kind of almost problematic like they develop a romantic relationship between Brad Pitt and an enslaved woman called Briseis that the one that Agamemnon kind of takes away from him and the film does so much to paint this relationship as being kind of as ethical as possible under the circumstances which I think itself is a disservice to kind of the historical realities of of slavery and the sexual violence under slavery Um, but the kind of the idea that they could have chosen to focus on this kind of reciprocal consensual relationship with Patroclus who's just kind of sitting right there and instead they decide to make him his cousin I just really don't understand the logic there um and yet you know that's the huge high budget Hollywood film that goes out in 2004. I I guarantee that if there was a film made of the epic of Gilgamesh which I don't I don't write off I I could definitely see that happening as a big budget CGI um that they would make Gilgamesh and Enkidu like these big bros you know ripped dudes just like out slaying beasts together smack each other on the back and, and not portray any of the kind of sensitivity I really like the idea Barney that you're so miffed by this concept of Hollywood making uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu these dude McBros who go around slaughtering and being super manly and buff um, like it suggests to me that maybe we should make the film the epic film Gilgamesh and Enkidu are there any uh, is it just is Hollywood just awful and ruining things or is there is there any other films out there uh, so there there was another film that came out in 2004 that is slightly more nuanced in its portrayal of um, various different types of relationships. Um, it's a film about Alexander the Great with Colin Farrell as Alexander. And, um, you know, among the relationships that Alexander has, there's one with his um, sort of childhood best friend, Hephaestion. Uh, there's, there's this phrase that becomes quite popular in the ancient world, um, it happens sort of after, quite a long time after uh, after Alexander's death. But it it is said that Alexander was never conquered except by Hephaestion's thighs. 
Um, and the film really sort of plays on uh, a jealousy that springs up between Alec- uh, between Hephaestion and uh, a Persian courtier called Bagoas, um, who sort of enters into a relationship with Alexander after he conquers most of Persia. And then there's another relationship that Alexander has with his um, with his wife, Roxanne. You've uh, actually reminded me, Xenia, of all these relationships with people like courtiers and things like that, of um, somebody that I read up about on Wikipedia, <laughs> on one of my like 2am Wikipedia binges, um, someone called Elagabalus, who I think was a Roman emperor, I want to say. And they uh, were really interesting because uh, they were the first person in recorded history to inquire about uh, having a sex change. And they had lots of very contentious relationships with people in the court, men and women, but also quite shockingly, I think, Vestal, I want to say Vestal Virgins. They actually died at the age of 18. They were assassinated by their grandmother, which is pretty shocking stuff i think i think they were thrown into a river i have looked it up and um despite the fact that elagabalus uh made uh, requests for surgeons to perform sex change surgery their their wikipedia article is full of he and him um which i think sort of resonates with what we were saying earlier about gay erasure and i feel like this is sort of trans erasure we don't we couldn't say for certain that elagabalus was trans but so it's just something to be aware of isn't it through history that gay erasure and trans erasure is a thing english let's just say english because we're all speaking in english can be inadequate translating terms that might uh intentionally or unintentionally lead to erasure of of a vast range of different identities there's sag er sag pil pili kurga ra um and all of these and and They've been translated in so many different ways as to remove any nuance about them because scholars over the years will variously say transgender, eunuch, male homosexual, all of these different things, and none of them work particularly well. And and each translator who's tried to apply uh, their own understanding to it is erasing something that will never uh, be reproducible to us, which is the, the social reality at the time of these people. I wonder if in the future when they're doing sort of like a, a podcast on on the iPhone 6000, uh, whether or not they'll talk about our time in history as being the great sort of binary trend where the all nuance was stripped and everyone was this or the other. And we're, it feels like we're starting to build up now uh, more of a language to use to describe ourselves and our, our identities, our gender identities, our sexual orientations. And I wonder if in the future they're going to be like, wow, <laughs> these people are so simple. I've just realised we haven't said against the law at all today. We haven't. Well, I feel like this whole episode has sort of been against the law, uh, thinking about relationships in the ancient world and how sometimes we don't we don't even have the language to be able to describe them or translate them uh, today. So, um, guys, what what do you think is the most sort of against the law thing that you found out today? I adored Barney's story about uh, Gilgamesh and Enkidu uh, because because you're quite right, Barney, that it's so history has such like a macho patriarchal dude mcbro storyline thing going on and these two guys being so intertwined and and such great companions that gilgamesh wasted away after enkidu uh, was killed it's just like it's super romantic i love that story 
Yeah, I mean, definitely, like, they're still macho. Um, but I just, I just hate the idea that any of the kind of queer potentiality of that story could be, could be underwritten. Um, and in that sense, my my best against the law today has been. I really appreciate Alison's insight on um, Achilles and Patroclus and how that's been twisted um, in as recently as 2004 with Patroclus being Achilles' cousin, which just sounds so absurd to me, like almost a kind of censoring or, or you know, taste making. Uh, that I'm, you know, that I found quite surprising. I, I really liked how um, the epic of Gilgamesh has been retold almost word for word in Star Trek. That's very cool. I like that. I think it's it's often really hard to reconstruct the stories of women and particularly queer women. There were loads of really talented queer women in the past whose stories we don't have. Sappho's exceptional because she is afforded some acceptance by her society and kind of more importantly, the intervening years between when she lived and us today, um, which really hasn't been the case for, for any other female ancient Greek author in the same way. Thank you for listening. Um, I learned loads today. I hope you did too. And I hope you have a lovely Valentine's Day. Join us next time when we'll be talking about schools in the ancient world. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Against the Law. If you enjoyed it, hit follow or subscribe so you'll get all our future episodes in your feed. We love hearing from you, so please get in touch with suggestions and feedback on Twitter at Against Law, that's L-O-R-E, or email Against the Law Podcast at gmail.com. Hold up. 